You're listening to the Safety of Work podcast, episode number 50. Today, we're asking the question, what is the relationship between safety work and the safety of work? Let's get started. Hey, everybody. My name's David Proven. And I'm here with Drew Ray, and we're from the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University. Well, Drew, there you go, 50 episodes. We mentioned at the end of last week whether we thought we'd get here, but how are you feeling about number 50? Yeah, when I started doing my very first podcast, I googled for how many episodes does a podcast need to have before it counts as successful? And I think I found that most podcasts either sort of drop out before 20 episodes, or they produce somewhere between 20 and 50 or it's like you know batting in cricket if you make it to 50 there's a decent chance of going on to 100. Oh very good okay well um just for for listeners um you know we're, we're safety people and safety people love stats but um look we I mean we have more than 50,000 downloads of episodes of the podcast we've got about 1500 people who follow us along on on LinkedIn so just a really big thank you from us to everyone who's listened, everyone who's shared this podcast with a colleague or a friend. We get lots of really great feedback. We also know that, you know, there's there's listeners um, out there who are sharing our episodes with their management teams to try to help them think critically and create change within their organization. So that's really nice to hear that feedback. And, you know, hopefully Drew in some small way, we're impacting the safety of work in um, many different organizations. So Drew, look, each week, it's the same as every week. We ask a question in relation to the safety of work or the work of safety, and we examine the evidence surrounding it. What are we going to do for today's episode? Well, regular listeners will know that every 10 episodes, we give ourselves permission to talk about our own research. And today we're going to be asking a very broad question, which kind of underpins all of our own research. And it certainly sits underneath the individual questions we ask on each podcast episode as well. So each podcast, our questions have something to do with the link between a safety idea or theory or practice and the outcomes of that idea in real situations in real organizations. And that's really the big question in safety. The way we're going to put it in this episode is what's the relationship between safety work and the safety of work? And it's very convenient, but we just happen to have a paper on that exact topic with almost those exact words. And so since it's episode 50, we thought we'd commemorate the milestone with a discussion of that question and that paper. So Drew, I think we mentioned in episode zero a year or so ago now, some of the history of the podcast, but you know, today we're going to talk about this paper that we co-authored uh, specifically exploring this relationship between safety work and the safety of work at a, at a broad or, or macro level. But, but first, a bit of background. So look, my career has always been in safety, so I guess I've made a career out of safety work. But perhaps embarrassingly, it wasn't probably until about a decade of being in safety that I actually started to become quite critical and reflective of this, this relationship or, or potentially lack of relationship between all of the safety work that goes on and the safety of the work for people who are exposed to the risk and trying to actually think about all of the assumptions and expectations that I was holding. And I think before we started working together, Drew, you'd been researching and writing in this space for, for quite a long time. Yeah, I don't know that that's because I started any earlier in my career than you did, David. I think it's just that I'm a smidgen older than you are. And on that, since our listeners may like stats, and I know that some of them are as pedantic as I can be, this is episode 50, but we started at episode zero. So technically, this is the 51st episode. 
So I just want to note and acknowledge that episode zero doesn't count. So yeah, I wasn't a practitioner for nearly as long as you were, David. But I did spend a lot of time both as a practitioner and as an academic trying to understand individual safety practices and to understand the evidence for why they worked or didn't work. But something that I struggled to articulate was that very often there was no real clear idea about what we actually mean when we say that a particular safety practice works. So I played around with different sort of language for describing that and different models. And eventually I started using this triangle that had three concepts on it. Assessment, which was measuring safety. Insurance, which was making things safer. And assurance, which was demonstrating that things were safe. And I knew that that model didn't work because it didn't catch on remotely. No one else liked it. No one else used it. And the other thing was that I could see that people put far more attention in real life on doing assessment and assurance activities than they spend on insurance activities. But it was very poorly defined what success for assessment and assurance were. What exactly is a good risk assessment? What exactly is a good safety case? Except for, you know, if your project manager is happy and your customer is happy, then you must be doing safety well. But that's not really what we mean by success in safety. So the thread I really started pulling at was risk assessment. And I was commenting on the fact that in accident investigations, people always seem surprised that risk assessment has gone badly. But when you look at other risk assessments, you see that the ones that get involved in accidents are no better or worse than the risk assessments that we use routinely. I published a couple of papers on this uh, under a title called Probative Blindness, um, talking about the fact that risk assessment's mainly about assurance rather than assessment. Or at the very least, it reassures people far more than it gives us information. But by now I was really seeing that the real questions in safety are really social and political rather than technical. Uh, so that's the point where I switched universities and departments. And it was pretty soon after that, David, that you and I met. Yeah, and I think we both had this fascination of all of these safety activities, mine more on the practitioner side, but but you had this very different view of uh, different types of techniques and a much greater understanding, obviously, of of the literature. So that was our initial direction. And, you know, we didn't really talk too much about it until I was in the main phase of my data gathering um, as part of my PhD, which you were supervising me for, Drew. And, and I came back from, you know, data gathering, I might have even mentioned this on the podcast before, and you know, I had all of this inform- all of these activities that safety people were doing. And when I was asking them in their interviews, why are you doing that? It was, oh, because my manager needs this or because the regulator needs this or because we need to improve, you know, culture or something like that. And then I'd come back from observing meetings where we just have long discussions about things that weren't related to understanding or reducing the risk that the people in the organisation faced. And I think I came back to you, Drew, with this idea of, you know, all this political and social and administrative stuff and then you sort of dusted off this, your uh, insurance, assurance and insurance model or assessment model. I remember the day in your office that we just went to work on the whiteboard trying to figure out what this model and, and the description of some of these areas might look like. Yeah, David, I guess it's probably worth saying a little bit about how PhD candidates work and what a PhD supervisor does. So typically the PhD candidate is the one who actually does all of the work. So they're the ones who go out and they collect the data, they analyze it, they write it up. And the supervisor's role always happens in these office meetings. So the candidate comes into the office and you sort of have a conversation. And sometimes it's like a management meeting, you're giving the candidate a stern talking to. 
But when the relationship's going well, it's much more about just supervisors sort of asking questions and giving direction and feedback. And lots and lots of work happens on the whiteboard as you sort of write up ideas and scribble them out and write them again. And the supervisor tries not to control the intellectual direction of the project, which is sometimes fairly hard if the supervisor has their own ideas about the work. And that was one of the troubles that we had here was I had this original model, but I'd never uh, finished it and never published anywhere. But it was clearly very relevant to the data that David had collected. It also wasn't a very good model in the sense that it didn't really fit neatly with any sort of existing theory. And if you've got an idea and no one else has thought of it before, probably the answer for that is you haven't looked hard enough. There are very few ideas which are so original that you can't find anything else that it meshes with. So yeah, in order to make sense of David's data, we needed to get the theory right and properly published so that we could then use it to analyze the data. So that was this that was this sideline project which turned into this uh, paper drew, which was really good because then by the time I wanted to cycle back around and analyze the data that I was collected, I could use this safety work model as a framework for for analyzing all of my data and trying to expand on that theory with all of the empirical information. So Drew, the paper was published in Safety Science in 2018. Authors are yourself and myself in that order. And I think that's probably the only, I think that's actually might even be the only paper that we've written um, just just as the two of us without other co-authors. So I don't think there's anything else that's been written. So Drew, this paper title, Safety Work Versus the Safety of Work, I've been asked a few times as to why we chose the conjunction versus, you know, when people look at, you know, safety one and safety two and, and all of these sort of opposing ideas in safety. And people have suggested to, uh, to me, shouldn't it be an and, not, you know, because we actually talk in the paper about, you know, organisations doing safety work and needing to create the safety of work. But um, do you remember why we went with Versus? As, as far as I can remember, it was really just to emphasise that these are two distinct concepts that usually get confused. So the Versus is there to sort of create rhetorical separation between them. We certainly didn't mean that it was intended to be opposing things that like safety work was in opposition to the safety of work. I think at times it definitely is the case that they're opposing. That's a point that we sort of later developed into the idea of safety clutter. But there's no inherent contradiction. It's just that we wanted to make it as sort of punchy and as clear as possible that these are two separate things. Yeah, thanks, Drew. I asked asked you that because you came up with the idea of the paper because it's actually, you know, People, listeners may not know, but it's a, it's a unique skill that you have in coming up with interesting and um, catchy titles for, for papers. And you continue to demonstrate that every week with uh, each podcast episode title. When I say, hey, how about this for a title? And you go, no, how about, how about this? And it generally um, makes things more interesting. And I think from my memory, an original working title that, that I was using on a draft was something like, why doing more safety doesn't reduce fatalities based on all the data that I collected and all the safety stuff and the the absence of the link with the safety of work. Drew, I'm, I'm thinking about last week's episode and where we talked about, you know, what exactly is a journal paper and the peer review process, because this was my first go at trying to put forward some original ideas and or, or some, some theory. And so you'd suggested that we go to a couple of colleagues and get some, let's say, get our own peer review before we actually even submit it to a journal for the first time. So we asked Rob Alexander, who we co-authored the manifesto paper with that, I, with that we spoke about in episode 20, and Sydney Decker to give us their, their initial peer review. And Drew, is that, is that common? Because that was really valuable from what I remember for forming up 
the final draft that we submitted. I, I think that is really good discipline within well-functioning research groups that papers get circulated and commented on before they go in for peer review. And it fixes some of the problems with peer review that, you know, you, you, you've got people that you can trust to make helpful comments. And if you pick the right people, they can actually give you stricter scrutiny than the peer reviewers do. You know, I remember sort of spending a couple of late nights and we thought we had something really good in this paper that we were just sort of worried that, you know, this is one of those things that sounds really good until you show it to someone else and it falls apart. So we sent it to Sydney, who basically cut the paper in half, said this half is good and this this half you're just extending too far and trying to solve too many of the world's problems. And, and so that's the sort of stuff that you really need someone that you trust to give you that sort of feedback. And then Rob's sort of feedback was going through each part of the idea and telling us which bits just weren't clear, didn't make sense. Yeah, no, it was really helpful. And so let's talk a little bit about the paper and 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 try to answer this question, what is the relationship between safety work and the safety of work? And I, I suspect some of our listeners haven't have read the paper and, and, and some can get in touch with us and get a copy if they can't uh, manage to get access. But the first key observation that we make in the paper is that we do lots of safety work in the organisation, Drew, and the reasons that we say we're doing it don't actually make sense. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? So, so yeah, if you ask people why they're doing these activities, their very immediate answer is very often we do it to keep people safe. But that only happens in the abstract. If you ask people, you're like, why do you do risk assessment? Why do you investigate incidents? They'll say it's to keep people safe. But if you ask people specifically, why are you doing this one right now? Very often it's because my manager told me to do it or because you know, it has to be done or because I need it for this report. And that, that sort of immediate answer is consistent with the fact that we don't have evidence that these things do actually keep people safe. And that's fine if it's just one or two activities or the evidence is weak. But these are activities that we do lots of. We do more of. They're growing in time. They're growing in complexity. They're growing in the number of people required to do them. And all of that is happening without the evidence base for them growing. So... You, a few things you could assume there. If it really is to keep people safe, then we are incompetent because you, we're doing all of this stuff without good evidence. It's a form of malpractice. Or it could be that we're actually evil, that we're getting people to do all of this work pretending it's to keep them safe in the full knowledge that it doesn't. But neither of those are satisfactory explanations either. You know, Safety professionals are not incompetent. Safety professionals are not insincere. And yet they're doing all of this work without evidence. So that's something that requires an explanation. And I think through a simple example that I use um, for this is when I'll have a discussion, say, with a safety professional or a manager saying, this person has to do a pre-start risk assessment checklist before they start the job, or they have to do an inspection of their vehicle before they hop in and drive, or they have to do a, a documented work procedure for something. And I'll ask, so, and I'll say, why? Oh, to keep people safe. And then I'll ask them, so when you're at home on the weekend and you're mowing the lawn, do you pull out your Take 5 pocketbook and do that? Or when you're going for a bike ride with your child, do you do a risk assessment and a procedure for that? And then it's like, well, no. And so it's an interesting conversation because then you say, so oh, do you not care about your family and you only care about your employees or, or have that conversation? And it's really hard because I think this is where I see people behave in a certain way inside their organisations, which is different to the way that they behave in the rest of their life, which is what really um, 
drew my interest and in, and and drew ourselves to the theory that we'll talk about shortly in relation to institutional work, because institutions are and our organisations are constructs. They they they're sort of like part of us, but they're not actually all of us. If that makes some sense. Yeah, David, that's a really acute example, um, because I think it really emphasises that. It's not the fact that when we do it at home, it's unsafe. And it doesn't mean that when we do it in the organisation, that doing the pre-start is a silly thing to do just because we don't do it at home. But what's the difference between at home and being at work is purely the fact that we are working for an organisation. And so any theory that's going to explain what the difference is going to have to explain something about what it means to work inside organisations. And so that's where we get to this sort of second key observation of the paper, that inside organisations, our actions aren't just like inputs and outputs, where we do something and it produces a little bit of safety. You, Some of the things we do that, some of the things we do are very goal-directed. We have a goal, we do something to achieve the goal. But there's also a lot of stuff that we do which is more expressive, now, there are lots more ways you can talk about expressive functions. Sometimes we talk about them as routines. Sometimes we talk about them as rituals. Uh, sometimes we talk about them as cultures. But the point is that they're not directly in that input-output, do this, get this result. In that, we conflate a lot of ideas when we talk about safety in between, like you said, instrumental functions and expressive functions. So you know, what are the different ways? When, when someone in an organisation says the word safety, what are, what are some of the different things that they could be referring to? So the most obvious one is they're doing safety stuff. So when I do a take five, I'm doing safety. When I do a pre-start, I'm doing safety. When I tell a supervisor to take responsibility for safety, I'm saying I want them to do the inductions and the investigations and the reports for safety. So all that doing stuff is safety. And then there's actually being physically safe. So I go to work, I come home and I'm not injured. And we call that safety. Or we might talk about that in terms of risk. So the risk of this work is really low. It's safe work to do. And this is the safe way to do it because there is a lower risk doing it that way. And then there's you know, feeling safe. When I go to work, I feel safe. Um, and we call that safety as well. You know, even if someone wasn't injured, if they were terrified the entire time, we wouldn't say that they were safe. And so those different purposes, the doing and the being and the feeling, are all things that we call safety, but different tasks contribute in different ways. And that's kind of hard to untangle until, David, you brought up this idea of institutional work, which has already talked about these things before. It's a way of looking at organisations that let us untangle some of these purposes that really only exist when you're part of an organisation. Yeah, Drew, and it wasn't long before this that I'd done my literature review on the safety profession. And so I was looking for different frameworks to try to understand all the different aspects of safety professional roles within organizations. And so it got me into, into a lot of social theory um, because obviously it's about safety people relating to other people, but some of the broader social theory was more about not specific to organizational settings. So that social theory kind of threw me into the institutional theory, which was specifically about how people relate to each other within institutional settings. And then obviously, like we said, when we talked about the episode on management fads and fashions, all these things, it's interesting when you actually go, oh, I want to understand what um, how people behave inside companies. And then you've got this these entire fields of organizational psychology and institutional theory. And some of the difference between the two is, you know, organizational 
psychology tends to think about the individual within the system. Institutional theory tries to look at the relationships and and the norms and, and the way that sort of the system sustains itself and functions. So, you know, we we make this central argument in, in our paper that safety work or safety management activities are a form of institutional work or safety management in its entirety is a form of institutional work. And so there's a few authors, Drew, that are, you know, like in any field, there's a few authors that seem to have been there since the start conceptualizing and defining the field. So in institutional work, there's Thomas Lawrence and Roy Sutterby, and they both work at Canadian universities. So Simon Fraser in Vancouver and the University of Alberta, respectively. For about the last 15 years, they've been kind of leading the development of this area of research. And what I might do, Drew, is link to a couple of um, institutional work articles in the show notes for, for this episode. Let's just talk about definitions for a minute. So an institution, where we use the word institution or organisation, we can use them interchangeably for our purpose, but an institution is those you know, enduring elements of social life that affect the behaviour and beliefs of individuals by providing templates for action, cognition and emotion. So work is an intentional activity. So we, we are trying to achieve something with all of our jobs every single day. And what we're trying to achieve is about transforming the organization, responding to the day-to-day demands, or even just working by habit and by routine. And all of these things are considered work. So we've got this whole field of research, Drew, about understanding how institutions work and then how people work within them. And we sort of found that a really promising direction to explore sort of safety management. And so one of the things that this lets us do is it lets us look at the work of safety professionals very much in the same way that we might look at any sort of frontline work. So something modern safety science does really well compared to older safety science is that it pays a lot of respect to frontline work and it treats things that happen as curious rather than as wrong or to be criticised. But the trouble with that is that very often and we can probably name some names here if we wanted to, it comes at the expense of being sympathetic to frontline work, but really critical of safety professionals and managers. And what we wanted to do was treat the work that those people do with the same sort of curiosity and respect, something that we don't want to criticise, we want to examine it and describe it. Yeah, I mean, and that was my perspective and 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 probably somewhat defensive having been a career safety professional and just working with all the challenges and nuances and politics and, and things that need to be managed when when some of the safety, um, I suppose, theorists talk about um, safety professionals being sort of unhelpful, unnecessary, a distraction. That was where I was obviously trying to with with my research go, well, hang on a minute, let's 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 understand and let's um, let's empathize and let's help um, rather than kind of like criticize. So Drew, we divide safety work. So, so we've got this idea. So safety work, this stuff that happens in organizations that's trying to shape uh, action and thoughts and beliefs of, of others. And so to do that, we do certain things. And so we categorized um, four different types of safety work, uh, con- broadly consistent with the institutional work theory. So do you want to just sort of introduce those four different types of safety work? And then we'll go into a little bit more detail with some examples. Okay, so so the very brief versions of them are that social safety is very much conceptual work. Um, It's aimed at making safety be a value in the organisation and letting the organisation believe that it is a champion of safety. 
the way I sometimes put that is we want to believe that we're the good guys and social safety helps us do that. Then there's demonstrated safety, which is much more uh, structural work that's aimed at stakeholders outside the organization, showing them that our organization is meeting its obligations. Then there's administrative safety, which is also a type of structural work, but it's turned inwards. It creates the sort of scaffolding and mechanisms for safety to get involved with operational work. And then the final one is physical safety, which is doing work which directly transforms the work environment, directly changes the front line in the interests of safety. So David, do you want to sort of flesh them out? We'll go through each one and maybe throw some examples in. Yeah, that's a great idea, Drew. So so social safety, um, and, and I, we're not starting there for any other reason than it's it's one of the four. So um, we don't claim any to be sort of more or less important or more or less dominant than the others. But social safety is the creation of this internal narrative that puts safety in a special position. So the organisation sort of displays and reinforces its collective commitment to the well-being of people involved with the company's operations. So the organisation will talk about, you know, safety is a value or safety first or um, safety is a priority and then do a whole range of things and within the business to try to promote and reinforce that message. But Drew, unless the organisation actually stops doing any physical work, safety cannot always be the constant top priority. So there's this constant reinforcement and, and clarification of the messaging. So some examples, you might want to throw some examples of what social safety work might look like. Yeah, so this is obviously going to be different between different organisations, which of these activities people do. But it'd be hard pressed to find any organisation that doesn't have a collection of these things that they do. So safety slogans, things like, you know, saying that everyone goes home safe every day, every accident is preventable, safety is no accident. Having those things sort of routinely said within the organisation. Uh, sometimes we have branded safety programs. So sometimes companies will even have like a special logo for their safety program. So these are things like safety first, zero harm, next gear. We think of those as like branded safety programs. Sometimes we set aside particular times and places that are just about safety. So for, you know, a few seconds or a few minutes, safety can genuinely be the number one priority. So sometimes those might be like safety shares at a meetings or safety moments. Uh, some organizations say that every agenda has to have safety as the first item or as the fifth item. Uh, safety stand downs probably fit into that as well. And then we use safety like as an adjective throughout the organization to mark certain things as special or sacred. So uh, we don't just have conversations, we have safety conversations. We don't just have requirements, we have safety requirements. So it's this putting of, of safety in a place where, like like we said, it's conceptual work. We're trying to actually create a, a consistent um, belief, value, understanding, prioritization around safety in the organization by all of these routines, activities, uh, rituals, and, and things that go on. And even, even management leadership visits fall into that category and safety days fall into that category and t-shirts and coffee cups and um, pens and, and everything else. It's just kind of the, the frequency and the recency of the, the communication around safety and the symbolism around safety in the organization is this broad category of social safety that, you know, organizations pay a lot of attention to. So David, it's probably worth mentioning there that this can be stabilizing. So it can be to try to just reinforce safety. But in some organizations, if you're trying to transform the way people think about safety, that's also a type of social safety work. 
So if you've got safety practitioners trying to maybe push the organization a bit more towards resilience or a bit more towards a safety to approach or towards safety differently, you can see that as a type of social safety as well. It's less stabilizing, it's more transforming, but it's still that conceptual institutional work. Yeah, so Drew, the next one we'll talk about is demonstrated safety work. And this um, consists of activities that assure safety to stakeholders outside of the organisation. So I like to describe this as this is activity that's pushing outwards from the point of risk towards other people that have an interest in in the actual risks and how they're being managed. And so to to flourish or to continue to, to operate a business needs, these stakeholders like regulators and communities and customers or clients to believe in the safety of the company's products and activities. You know, it has to be seen to, you know, I think for us to be sustainable and successful, the company has to be seen to to be safe. And without this approval, then an organization won't over time obviously sustain its business. So stakeholders, you know, that pose a threat to the organization's sort of sustainability, then they can create kind of alliances and institutions. And we see this like with, with regulators, with trade unions, with activist invest, investors and things like that and demand this assurance from the organisation. So organisations have a whole raft of activities inside them to be able to provide this demonstration of safety to those stakeholders. Drew, and have you got some examples of those? Yes. So, so I think this idea of demonstrated safety fixes up one of the original ideas I had when I was talking about assurance versus insurance. People in engineering organizations would be very comfortable with the idea of safety assurance, but it's not so familiar to people doing very operational work. So everyone does something that is demonstrated safety. Um, If you're in an engineering organization, you're probably doing things that are very much about assurance, like producing safety cases, like producing risk assessments and showing them to outside stakeholders, like getting licensing for products or installations. If you're a small business, maybe what you're doing is much more to do with regulatory approval, getting and keeping a license to operate, uh, keeping the inspectors off your back. If you're in a construction firm, maybe it's much more about audits and certifications and keeping up your standards, subcontractor pre-qualification with your principal contractor, or you know, showing your clients that you've got the right ticks in the right boxes to get that next contract. One of the nuances, Drew, with demonstrated safety, I just see here that in the and see here and this is the problem well not the problem this is what happens when you publish something and keep thinking about the same thing for a couple of years after you publish it you um you realize we, we sort of describe demonstrated safety as stakeholders outside of the organization but increasingly when i talk to organizations about this i also describe it as internal stakeholders that need safety management demonstrated to them like senior management teams like board of directors like parent companies as well and the work we're doing with organizations is finding that actually that um internal demonstration of safety you know, there's a, there's a huge amount of activity generated in that space from an operational unit to sort of demonstrate safety back into the broader organisation. Yeah, the, the way you put it before, David, about pushing away from the point of risk, that, that's the true meaning of demonstrated safety. It becomes most obvious where there are interfaces that it needs to cross as it pushes away from that point of risk. So if it sort of crosses from a local unit into the global business, it becomes very clear. If it crosses across an organizational boundary to an outside stakeholder, it becomes very visible. But demonstrated safety can be as simple as the team leader filling out a risk assessment, not for the team, but for the company. Yeah, exactly. So Drew, the third one we'll talk about is administrative safety. And this is this is this enactment of, you know, controllable, repeatable, measurable safety routines. So, you know, 
as with the demonstrated safety uh, work, administrative safety activities are a form of structural institutional work. They're, they're designed to manage the day-to-day -day activities of the organisation. They're trying to translate goals and objectives to do with safety in the organisation into concrete plans with, with, with activities, with responsibilities, with clear expectations for what is required of people. And you know, this is how we run our organisations. We try to get, as um, Daniel Katz would say, we try to get this um, dependable role performance into our organisation so that we we actually know the way that people are, are doing their work and, and and how we can know that it may or may not be be safe. So, however, Drew, the more that we understand about, I suppose, complex systems and how accidents are, how accidents emerge from, from work or, or from complex systems, it's kind of the less we can claim to actually have these definitive knowledge and solutions that we've got inside all of our safety management systems. Because we don't have a lot of these solutions, we kind of just bundle up and continue to push forward with everything we've got in the in our organisation in terms of rules and requirements um, for that. So do you want to talk about some examples in, in that space or say any more about administrative safety? Yeah, so, so this is the part of the model that I've always been most uncomfortable with. And it went through a few different names. It started off talking about it as actually bureaucratic safety. And we realised that the, the trouble is that it often this work seems to lack any sort of direct purpose. It, it's like the work exists to maintain a system. And the hope is that the existence of that system is then going to properly support the demonstrated safety or the physical safety that we'll talk about next. But often the work seems futile uh, be because it really is maintaining a system that's not necessarily doing anything except keeping the system going. So some things that we do within administrative safety, some of them are to do with actually operating a formal safety management system. Uh, so if you've got something that you call a safety management system, if you've got procedures, if you've got work instructions, the existence of those things, the maintenance of those things, the recording of those things, that's administrative safety. If you have KPIs or you collect safety metrics and report them, that's administrative safety. Uh, internal safety reporting, so communications from one person to another according to a schedule or according to a defined time that a report needs to be given. And then lots of things that are written down, so take fives, inductions, safe work method statements, even some types of training would fit into administrative safety. Yeah, then there'd be lots of things like emergency evacuation exercise drills or yeah, re-induction training every 12 months and all of these rules and requirements um, that we have in our organisation to, I suppose, try to create some certainty around the way that the business is managing its risk. So Drew, the next one or the fourth one that we'll talk about is physical safety. And so this is, well, I suppose one of the things that maybe it's your engineering background, you've always, always talked about, you know, an accident needs sort of... Um, needs a hazardous energy source and a person to come together in the same sort of time and space to create an accident. So physical safety is is safety work that directly changes the work task or the environment. So the people, the equipment, the work process, and therefore it's, you know, our physical safety work activities, I suppose, has the potential for a more direct causal link to operational safety. Because if you if you think about it, like the other types of work we've mentioned about demonstrated, administrative or social they actually have to have an impact on the physical work or via some sort of physical safety. So, for example, you might do an audit for some for as demonstrated safety for a stakeholder and might identify some 
change to a work process, which you then go and implement as a physical safety change in the business. So I suppose physical safety is that um, only safety work activity that's um, one step removed from the safety of work, I suppose, as opposed to, you know, a minimum of two steps removed like the others. Yeah, I guess if you think of demonstrated safety as pushing out from the point of risk, administrative safety when it is working properly is pushing in towards the point of risk. Physical safety is stuff that directly changes that point of risk and therefore changes the risk itself. So if you imagine, yeah, apologies for the engineering background, but if you imagine you the actual physical matter and energy that's occurring at work, what can we do to actually change that? So if we like directly change the physical environment, so the most naughty version of that would be putting out witches' hats. You physically change the work environment. A much bigger change might be you conduct work on the ground instead of on the fifth floor. You've changed the work environment. Changes to tools or PPE. People are literally holding different things in their hands or wearing different things. Or changes to the actual way work is performed. And got to be very clear there, changing the procedure doesn't change the way the work is performed. It changes the procedure. If in turn the person actually does different actions, that's changes to the way work is performed. So do I think people would, I suppose it's here before we um, we move on in that we've talked about those four different types of safety work. And and this is where I think we'll, we'll talk about practical takeaways later, but the chance to be really critical of the safety work activities in our own organisations, because it is fairly easy to to not be critical, not to critically reflect on it, but it is easy just to think, well, that's okay. All of my stuff contributes directly to physical work and every inspection and every audit and every meeting that I have. I was actually, true, I don't know if I've told you this story, but I was at a, say, I gave a safety clutter presentation once to about 40 people and I defined safety clutter and then I basically asked people to put your hand up if there's something in your organisation that you do um, for safety that you are unsure has a direct impact on the safety of work. And not one hand went up. And then I, I tried to ask the question a different way. And then I tried the reverse, which is so everyone in this room thinks that everything that gets done in their organization for safety has a direct and measurable contribution to the safety of work. And 50 people basically said yes. And I was like, well, okay, you're not going to like the rest of this presentation then. So let's, <laughs> but I mean, through the presentation, people sort of understood what I was talking about, but it was that that absence of that critical reflection and that just ongoing belief in the assumption that everything we do in our organizations for safety has this kind of like direct contribution to reducing risk. Yeah. So since we wrote the paper, I've tried a number of different ways of explaining that. Uh, one of them is to sort of ask the opposite question to say, if you stopped doing this activity right now, would people automatically be less safe? And if they have to give any sort of explanation or reason, then it's not directly changing safety. There's some sort of causal link. So, you know, if the risk assess assessment wasn't filled out, would someone be automatically less safe? The only true answer to that is no. Because you know, even if the risk assessment is keeping people safe, it's doing it by, they do the risk assessment. As a result of the risk assessment, they're thinking about the task changes. As a result of their thinking changes, they do the tasks differently. So getting rid of the risk assessment doesn't automatically make them less safe. They may still do the task exactly the same way without the risk assessment. Yeah, and I think that's the, um, I suppose that's the existential question for the safety profession. If for nothing else, though, we've given the safety profession a lot of legitimacy in all of this other activity that they're doing in the organisation for different stakeholders as well. But 
you know, that's that's the question that we want to ask because the final type of safety, which obviously we talk about as the safety of work, or I think in the model we, we talked about operational safety, which is after we put all of this safety work activity together, um, administrative safety, demonstrator safety, social and physical safety, and wrap all of that up in our organisation together, with everything else that goes into um, planning and executing work, then how safe is the actual physical task of work when people are performing it? And that's where I suppose we we end the model, Drew, because our understanding was is maybe work is safe all the time and organisations assume it's because of all of this stuff they're doing in safety and we're trying to ask them to go, well, let's look at each of these things one by one um, and let's look at the things that we don't call safety as we know from more complexity theory says that there's probably... I would argue, Drew, I don't know if you'd agree with me, but I would argue that there's more things that contribute to the safety of work broadly across the organisation than there are sort of the contribution of any of the safety work specific activities that we do. Yes. So maybe the true title of the paper is replacing that word versus with a big question mark, because that's really what we want to know is we're fairly sure that there is a connection. We're fairly sure that lots of the stuff we do that in the name of safety, all of this safety work we do, has some impact on the safety of work. But we don't know which bits. We don't necessarily know exactly how we find it hard to articulate the how. We know that some of it definitely doesn't. We know that some of it we do for totally different reasons. And only when we sort of acknowledge that there is that gap and that question mark, does it let us have those sort of frank and clear conversations about why we're doing what we're doing and what we might be willing to change based on the evidence. So Drew, the format of this paper was, um, I suppose, as a theory paper where we actually, we outlined sort of the background, the challenge or, or the, the the phenomena that we're trying to understand. And then we proposed this, this theory of four different types of safety work and how it may or may not be connected to um, the safety of work. And then we went on to describe a whole range of other sort of things around, around the theory. And then I suppose good initial theory papers do is then actually raise further questions. Say these are the questions that we haven't answered yet. These are the these are the um, the questions that we should be able to answer if this if this uh, this theory sort of stands the test of time. And so there's there's sort of five sections in the back end of the paper. We might just talk about them really briefly, given time, if you like, and then we can go on to some practical takeaways. Are you happy with that? Yeah, I think we've certainly got time to talk about a couple of these things. The the really I guess most obvious one is that these different types of work have to compete for attention within the organisation. And so that's why acknowledging the different purposes really matters. So, for example, if you're in uh, some industries like railways, then demonstrated safety is going to take up a lot of your time and attention. There are like legal and structural requirements to produce safety cases, to do safety activities that go with those. And very often those are conducted almost like a separate product from the producing the technical equipment that's going to go onto the tracks. So there's a sort of clear balance there where we're taking time and attention away from improving the design towards persuading people that it is a good design. And that can triple the cost of a product doing that extra work. And at a practical level, Drew, um, we've actually developed, I suppose, the Safety Science Innovation Lab and, and have developed some questionnaires to help organisations understand their safety work orientation and, and its relationship between safety work activities and the safety of work. And doing that work recently, seeing how that trade-off gets made with at an individual practitioner level. So a safety professional saying, oh, I really should be out in the field today following up on this issue, but I need to get this report to my manager by the end of the day. And the conversations we're having with, with those practitioners is that's an organisation that needs to spend some time discussing how it wants uh, safety professionals to make trade-off decisions. 
So this competition for attention happens at sort of an organizational um, level and happens at a at a day-to-day practitioner level as well. Yep. Another way they interrelate more positively is that in most organizations, there probably is a bit of mutual reinforcement across all of the different types of work. So if you think that every time you do a bit of social safety work and you change the way people think about safety or maybe even improve safety's priority, that is going to have some positive effect on the quality of the administrative work and the timeliness and whether it gets done. Uh, We hope that running a safety management system with procedures has some control over the stability of work and the prevention of unsafe work practices. Yeah, so they do they do relate, but also I suppose in the in the negative as well. So if you have a, a problems with um, physical safety, so say a near miss where the organisation sort of gets um, threatened in relation to physical safety, then it's going to spill over into maybe more administrative requirements, more social safety activity to reinforce the importance, maybe more demonstrated safety if there's a a notice from a regulator or something like that. So threats to each one of these things, like a non-compliance on an administrative point of view or someone thinking management aren't taking it seriously from a social point of view, a regulator notice or a near miss, these threats in relation to any of these types of work can cause work to happen in all of the other areas of the model. One of the things that we were playing with when we put the paper together was this idea that after an accident, people can get confused about what they actually need to fix. So, you know, always what you want to fix is the physical safety and the operational safety. But the recommendations we put in place are often actually in the other areas. We put in requirements that amount to demonstrating safety, that amount to administrative safety. And so you see after an accident, an organization's amount of administrative activity goes up. Their need to demonstrate things to outside stakeholders goes up. And that can actually then in turn drain energy away from resources necessary for improving the front line. Yeah, I remember drawing those models and it's quite ironic. I've probably got some photos of those original models. Um, if I could drag one out of my phone, I might put it in the comments of the um, the podcast episode because we're actually saying that it's in, it's it's quite ironic or, or concerning that at that time when there's an obvious need post-incident for a lot of work to go into physical safety, that work can basically, like we said before, competition for attention, that work can flow into other areas of the model which are maybe less impactful on physical safety. We'll have to do a whole episode sometime on industrial manslaughter, but I use the safety of work model to reason about the effect of industrial manslaughter laws, that they drastically drive up the need to demonstrate safety. You drive up the need to demonstrate safety, that drives up the amount of administrative safety. And unless you increase the amount of safety resource in your organisation, the logical effect is that an industrial manslaughter law is going to remove resource and energy away from frontline safety. And it's interesting you mentioned administrative safety there, um, drawing resource away. And and, and this is probably the, one of the things I've thought about quite a bit recently, because when we did this model, I, I had for a little while this, this belief that we could get every single safety practice in an organization and put it in one of the four quadrants on the model and said, this activity is this, or this activity is this. And what I realized with, with at least my data collection around the safety profession is the same activity can sit in, you know, different parts of the model, depending on why it's being performed and how it's being performed. And the example I give is something like a, um, a contractor safety improvement plan. So your contractors have a few incidents and you're the client and you tell your contractor that they need to prepare a contractor safety improvement plan. Now for that contractor, that could be one of two things. That could be a demonstrated safety activity where the only reason they're doing that plan is to get the client off their back and nothing physical is changing in the, in the work environment. 
Or it could be done as a process where they go, oh, yeah, well, actually, this is a great opportunity for us to really engage with our front line and we can identify things that we need to change. And it could actually be, you know, an administrative safety task that directly flows down to physical safety. So I sort of see a lot of this administrative stuff as being, you know, it's interesting to think in your own organization, how much of that administrative stuff is being done for demonstrated purposes and how much of that administrative stuff is being actually driven towards physical safety purposes. Um, and that's a good test to ask with those requirements. Uh, I think another good example that works as a real litmus test is incident investigations. Incident investigations fall into every box and it's a power struggle which box is getting the most attention. So, you know, every incident investigation to a certain extent is done for social reasons. We do it to restore a sense of normalcy, to convince people that we are responding appropriately, that we care about the accident, we care about you. It's unacceptable that this has happened and we're sending a clear signal that it's not going to happen again. That's all social safety. Every incident investigation is also done partly as a legal defence. So we do it so that we've got something to show outsiders when they ask about the incident. Might not be strictly legal, it may be to show clients or to show principal contractors that we have done our job. Incident investigations are done according to a particular format, according to a particular process. There may be organisational rules that require the incident investigation. All of that is administrative. And then we'd hope with all of that attention taken, there is a little bit left over that the incident investigation is going to make recommendations that change the way the work happens. And I think, Drew, it's, um, yeah, absolutely. And I think it's interesting. The, the last point I think we'll make before we go into practical takeaways is about negotiation of power. Because depending on the emphasis in the organisation around activity, power is given to certain uh, actors in the system. So an organisation that focuses heavily on physical safety and really pushing towards the point of risk um, with goal-directed risk reduction work or is, is an organisation that's sort of putting, giving a lot of power in relation to safety to the front line to the workforce, you know, a lot of attention and effort and resource and engagement is being directed there. An organisation that is obviously doing a lot of social safety activity is, is focusing heavily at a management level generally. An organisation that is largely administrative is giving a lot of power to the safety department and the safety profession who owns and creates and administers and monitors all of those administrative requirements. And then obviously companies that do a lot of demonstrated work give a lot of power to you know, those external stakeholders and regulators and, and others. So it's interesting to see the way that um, power in the organisation flows around depending on where the organisation's emphasis is in relation to the model. So, so those are some of the reasons why we think the model is useful for thinking about safety within an organisation, both from a research point of view, but also just from a understanding what we do and understanding why we do it. But David, do you want to try to turn that into a couple of more practical takeaways for our listeners? Yeah, I thought, um, I thought hopefully there's been a few practical things along the way and people are getting um, some, like you said, a different maybe framework to think about everything we do in our organization called safety. And that was the first thing that I think was important was that we were trying to create a nuanced language when we talk around safety. You know, this difference between being safe and doing safety and feeling safe, they're not the same thing, but a lot of times we call them all safety. So when people say, how's safety going? Do they mean how do people feel in relation to safety? How's our compliance relation to safety going? How's our safety department going? So, you know, just saying how are we going in relation to safety is not a very nuanced or, or useful question. So we were trying to give language um, through this model. And I think it's important for practitioners to use very clear language when talking about different aspects in relation to safety within their organisation. 
I think also, Drew, um, being very critically reflective, I talked about sort of my lost decade of not really questioning too much about all the safety work activities I was doing in my in my roles, but being critically reflective of why you're doing certain pieces of safety work, not just, you know, don't don't fall into the trap of saying just to improve safety, but think about the drivers of the work, who's it for, whose needs are being addressed, you know, and, and ultimately, do I understand how this work might be connected to improving the safety of work for people exposed to risks in the business? Can I throw in there, David, that being critically reflective doesn't need to mean existential despair? I think that one thing that the safety of work model offers is it legitimizes some of this work, which is not directed at improving frontline safety and says that this is necessary and valuable stuff for organizations to work, for them to be able to get their other work done. So by facilitating this work, you're not wasting time. You're not being bureaucratic. I mean, you might be for other reasons, wasting time and being bureaucratic, but just because something is directed at demonstrating safety or managing a system doesn't mean that it doesn't have intrinsic value for the organization functioning as an institution. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good point, Drew. Um, yeah, the last thing I'd want to do is give people sort of existential dilemmas. But um, but I think it's important to 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 know that, to know that, okay, well, this part of my role is 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 serving these needs and purposes. And and then hopefully there's there's a bit of time for people to carve out kind of the balance that they'd like to see in their role and, and help having conversations with their organization about that, about that balance. And the third one, Drew, I might hand over to you because it's kind of a bit your your mantra for um, you know, what you like to see for people in relation to any safety activity that happens in any organization. So listeners can't see our notes. And this is in the text that says that David wrote this bit for me to say. And it just says, evaluate, 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 which I think is, yeah, I'm almost happy to just leave that as a takeaway. And but what we mean by that is that's why we that's why we measure and evaluate safety work is ultimately we're measuring that link between the safety work and the safety of work. That's the heart of any evaluation is trying to find a way to examine that link, to measure it, and to demonstrate to ourselves that if we think that this is working, that it is actually working by changing the safety of work. Yeah, Andrew, I use one last example and then we'll um, we'll wrap up, but I, I, I use the example of... Um... Uh, a, a company that I was involved with oh, a couple of years ago now, but a mining company who was convinced that their take five pre-start assessment was really important in identifying and resolving hazards. And that was the mechanism. So they said, people can raise any issue in the morning and it gets fixed and then we can move on. And it was like, well, how do you know that? And this was in, about the time when we we're doing the safety clutter work. Is it just, do you just believe that or do you have evidence? And they said, oh, no, no, we, we, we believe it. That's the, the way it happens. So I remember emptying a box of these take fives all over the floor and we looked through and there was only two that had, oh, here's a hazard ticked. Everything else was just, yes, 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 it's okay. And so two of about, you know, of, of, of thousands of these these things. And it was the same, the same person who'd done it on two consecutive days. So actually went out on site, maybe being a bit assertive, but I said, let's try and find out. Went out on site and found the person and said, oh, and they said, oh, yeah, yeah, that was a broken piece of equipment. Yeah, I, I reported it the first day. And then I reported the second day and no one came to speak to me about it or did anything about it. So I just started ticking yes again. And that was the end of it. So I think what you said there about evaluate, evaluate is if you're of the belief that your pre-start risk assessment is really important to identify and resolve hazards, which makes the safety of work, which enhances the safety of work, then go and check that it's happening the way you think it is. That's a fantastic story, David. So other things we'd like to know, anything you'd like to hear back from the listeners after 50 episodes? 
Oh, look, we love getting your fe- we love getting feedback. Um, we like the engagement on LinkedIn, the questions, um, the ideas for for you know episodes, things that we can answer on the podcast that can help you. We've had a couple recently. We had um, a good friend reach out in relation to blame and learning for some work that they were trying to, or some influence they were trying to have in their organisation. So you know, it's very easy to get in touch with us, and um, we'd love to hear your ideas, but also just some feedback, you know, what's the next year, what's the next year going to look like? Um, we've tried a few different types of episodes. We've tried interviewing researchers. We've tried giving some how-to type episodes uh, and and let us know, let us know how everything's working for you in relation to the podcast. So Drew, the question for this week, episode number 50 was, what is the relationship between safety work and the safety of work? And your answer is? Well, if safety work and safety of work were Facebook friends, I think their relationship status would be it's complicated. But just by recognizing that they're not the same thing, I think that starts us down a path towards a better understanding of safety and helps bring the two things closer together. Thanks, Drew. And thanks for talking alongside me for the last uh, year or so. And hopefully we can uh, still find the time to you know do it for a couple more years yet. So that's it for this week. We hope you found this episode thought-provoking and ultimately useful in shaping the safety of work in your own organisation. Like we said, send any comments, questions, ideas for future episodes to us at feedback at safetyofwork.com. <laughs>